From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Megan Leibsch. My guest today, Annie Phoenix, grew up in the gravitational orbit of the U.S. criminal justice system. I knew a lot of friends growing up who were arrested, um, family members. I myself was arrested multiple times um, before the age of 18, but I never faced serious consequences because when the times I was arrested, I, I just got a lot of grace. I got a lot of people who said, like, you made a mistake, but that's not who you are. My life was uh, severely, you know, saved and kind of better because people saw me and um, thought that I deserved another chance and another chance and really key moments and that I deserved resources and support. So by the time I got to Scripps, um, when I was in this kind of environment of extreme privilege, uh, it became really clear how growing up adjacent to the criminal legal system was really different than my peers um, who had no experience with those systems and kind of no concept of how much uh, that experience can really destroy your life. The U.S. has the highest number of prisoners per capita in the entire world. Over 2 million people here are locked up. Racial minorities and the materially poor are a disproportionate slice of that pie. The U.S. penal system is vast, and as a result, its sheer gravity extends far beyond those behind bars. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, 113 million adults have an immediate family member who has been incarcerated. On top of the emotional toll, families who have an incarcerated loved one are saddled with immense financial burdens. 65% of these families are unable to pay for basic needs like food and housing, let alone legal fees or phone call charges for the family member in prison. Growing up in Oakland, Annie knew all of this. She'd lived some of the statistics. But as a theater and psychology major at Scripps College, it became clear that most of her fellow students didn't understand these realities. That realization forced Annie to ask, what am I doing here? The answer propelled her into a career campaigning for criminal justice reform. After college and a stint as an elementary school teacher, Annie was looking for volunteer opportunities with prison education programs. But there really weren't any education programs in Louisiana prisons. So she decided to start one. Annie co-founded multiple initiatives aimed at expanding education access to people who are incarcerated. Through her nonprofit, Operation Restoration, Annie and her team provide educational tools, creative programming, and immediate social services to formerly incarcerated women. Her advocacy has led to successful reforms, including Louisiana's restoration of Pell Grants to students with criminal convictions. Most recently, she was appointed Executive Director of the Jesuit Social Research Institute, or JSRI, at Loyola University, New Orleans. Founded by Jesuit Father Fred Kammer, JSRI works to transform the Gulf South through analysis, education, and advocacy on the issues of poverty, race, and migration. Along with JSRI and Loyola staff, Annie is spearheading a new educational program for incarcerated men in Louisiana. My conversation with Annie spans her work in advocacy, and together we dig into big questions like how does gender impact experiences of incarceration, and what does Catholic social teaching have to say about policy change? So here's my conversation with Annie Phoenix, director of JSRI. Annie, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So in 2021, you completed your PhD in sociology, uh, where your dissertation analyzed efforts to remove barriers to higher education for people with criminal convictions. And the U.S. criminal justice system has long been a subject of your work as both a researcher and a nonprofit founder, um, and even as an undergrad studying theater and psychology. Uh, for your senior thesis at Scripps College, you directed a performance of Othello at a juvenile hall. So I'm curious what initially sparked your interest in criminal justice reform? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for the question. I So I grew up in Oakland, California, as you mentioned, um, and I felt like the criminal justice system was just always adjacent um, to my life. So you know, I knew a lot of friends growing up who were arrested, um, family members. I myself was arrested multiple times um, before the age of 18, but I never faced serious consequences because when the times I was arrested, I, I just got a lot of grace. I got a lot of people who said, like, you made a mistake, but that's not who you are. And uh, I, my life was... Uh, severely, you know, saved and kind of better because people saw me and um, thought that I deserved another chance and another chance and really key moments and that I deserved resources and support. So by the time I got to Scripps, um, when I was in this kind of environment of extreme privilege, uh, it became really clear how growing up adjacent to the criminal legal system was really different than my peers. Um, who had no experience with those systems and kind of no concept of how much uh, that experience can really destroy your life. And it was kind of isolating. Um, and then there was a specific incident um, when I was, I believe, in my first year in college where a, fr a friend of mine uh, growing up was killed by another kid that we all knew. Um, and there was a trial that was, um, you know, really difficult for everyone involved um, and really impacted me and my friends um, who had grown up with these kids and knew, you know, knew them intimately. And, uh, and at the same time, I was really questioning kind of my place in college. And I had a wonderful professor, um, Sheila Walker in psychology, and she encouraged me to start working with criminal legal system reform and specifically working in prisons um, to kind of find my footing at Scripps and to move forward. And so I started volunteering and teaching poetry in a juvenile hall and got involved with leading writing workshops in a women's prison. And then, you know, by my senior year, kind of created my own course to do a theater-engaged course at the juvenile hall. And those were really trans really transformative experiences in my life. Um, mostly because I went into prisons and I saw people who were around my age, uh, who had grown up where I had grown up, who in some cases knew the same people that I knew. And it became very clear to me that the grace that I had been afforded is not uh, equally distributed. And uh, that really instilled in me a responsibility to um, do something about the system that it's ruining so many lives. 
How did these early experiences, you know, these student experiences preparing this programming um, in juvenile halls and in incarcerated settings, you know, how has that prepared you for your larger body of, of research? And is this the career that you expected? You know, it sounds like criminal justice and the, the criminal justice system has always been um, a significant part of your life. But did you expect to be, you know, a researcher studying it kind of full time? I mean, honestly, I don't think I could have predicted any of this path. (laughs) I am really, I feel really blessed to be in the position that I'm in to be able to have this opportunity um, at JSRI. Um, But I, you know, I, I couldn't see the path from the beginning. I knew, I knew that working in prisons was giving my education purpose and was helping me feel grounded and anchored in my studies and what I was doing at Scripps. Um, And I thought what I loved about that was teaching. And so I ended up becoming a teacher uh, and moved to New Orleans to teach elementary school and um, became really apparent to me how broken the education system is, um, I think everywhere, but especially in New Orleans. And I really... um, wanted to get back to working in prisons um, and which was really why I ended up pursuing my PhD was to be able to get back to working in prisons because I called at first I called around and tried to volunteer and the programs just didn't exist to volunteer for. Um, And I decided because the programs didn't exist, I was probably going to have to make one. Um, And a PhD seemed like a good opportunity to be able to make a program Um, So I applied to one PhD program. I didn't have a master's degree. I didn't think I was going to get in. Uh, They only accepted six people. And to, I think, my surprise more than anybody's, I got into this PhD program and they said, yes, we want you to create this prison education program and we want to support you to do it. And uh, so really that was the focus of my PhD was expanding educational opportunities. And now to be able to do that, uh, in an even more intentional way in this role at the Jesuit Social Research Institute is really a dream. I've said it multiple times. This is my dream job. I have achieved <laughs> what I, I, a dream that I couldn't even ever articulated because I didn't know that such a perfect opportunity would exist to combine all the things that I'm passionate about in my experience to be able to continue to do good work um, And so I'm, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I'm pleasantly surprised. (laughs) I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned that you grew up in Oakland, California, um, and then moved to teach um, in New Orleans. Uh, What, what drew you to Louisiana? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. Um, I actually had, I had never been to New Orleans before I moved here. Um, But a family had come through New Orleans at kind of my on my grandmother's side. So I ended up doing the Teach for America program. So you have to kind of list what your preferences are of where to live. And I was so I was kind of thinking like, what cities could I see myself living in? And New Orleans just called to me, it just was, you know, so it made it onto my list. And I some I knew even before I got the call that I was going to end up in New Orleans. And I can't say how I knew. But I knew, and uh, and it was a really, you know, it was it was fate. It was a <laughs> it 
we ended up, it was God and we ended up here together. Um, and I, from the first day I got here, I knew I wasn't going to leave. I, I think New Orleans, you either, you show up and you either find everything that's wrong with it or you find exact that it's exactly where you're meant to be. Like people have a pretty strong reaction in either direction. <laughs> um, I can, I can imagine living anywhere else. So as you mentioned, um, you began your PhD after finishing teaching um, at Tulane University. Um, and then shortly after that, you co-founded Operation Restoration, which is a nonprofit that supports currently and formerly incarcerated women. What were some of your initial hopes for this organization? Sure. Yeah. So in my PhD program, I started meeting with as many people as I possibly could to just try to figure out how to start a program. Um, and one of the people that I met with actually at Loyola, at Loyola Law School, was Sarita Stive, who's formerly incarcerated and had, was leading a symposium on uh, women and incarceration. And I met her that day. And then it was like every meeting for the next two months, we were in the same room. So maybe three or four or five times a week, we would just be in the same room. <laughs> and finally, she took me out to coffee and she said, I don't know why, but we're supposed to work together. The two of us are supposed to work together. And I said, yeah, I love working with people. And she was like, no, you and I are going to build something together. Um, and she had this idea for Operation Restoration. I had been working on increasing educational opportunities. I kind of, I had the programming and she had the vision for the organization and we combined forces our hopes were really expansive and i really have Tarita to thank for that because she's a, a visionary and she wanted an organization that didn't have that really helped women in every possible way conceivable way who are impacted by incarceration so whereas my focus was on education she knew being formally incarcerated, we needed to be providing reentry services. We ended up starting a bail fund. We um, ended up building all these different programs to meet community needs. Everything was built out of necessity. And, um, and I really owe that to, to her vision um, and kind of her strength of, of like seeing this large picture and possibility. Yeah, as you say, you know, alongside Cyrita, um, you, you built this organization from a budget of basically zero dollars and just the two of you um, to what is now a staff of 20 with a $5 million budget. Um, and you have all of these expansive programs. Um, but the early days were also challenging um, for you you said in an interview with Yale Law School that one of the greatest challenges at the start um, was just believing in yourself. Um, and it sounds like Cyrita was was a big, you know, ins inspiration on that point. But how did you overcome that that self-doubt? Yeah, it, that that it, honestly, it was believing in myself and it was believe believing that and what was possible. Like, I think we can only be kind of as big as we allow ourselves to dream. And at first I 
feel like I was really limited in, in what I could dream. I just kind of only wanted this one little program to be a certain size. And, uh, and the way that we overcame that was actually with some support and visioning from a program called Fishbird, um, which is out of the Northeast. These two wonderful men and this kind of this group came in and did this strategic planning with us. I guess if you could call it that, it's more like healing. <laughs> it's more like just group consciousness work. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to do a Jesuit retreat yet, but I imagine that there is some similarities in the kind of principles of discernment and spiritual exercises. Uh, because really the one question for this two day retreat was if money wasn't, if there were no limitations in the world, what would you do? Uh, and then as a group being able to, understand who we are and what our purpose is and how those fit together to uh, really give people opportunities to carry out their purpose and do the work. And so from that two days emerged this kind of beautiful vision where we were able to work together and see each other really clearly um, and then move forward from that place. You know, one of our, we, we had one of our early staff members, Dolphinette, who her whole passion is housing. She's formerly incarcerated. She did not have housing coming home from prison. And that was what was in her heart. And that's what lit her up. And uh, we were able to put so much, so many resources to get her a, a house to be able to welcome women home. And that is her life's purpose. It's a beautiful thing to see people living in their life's purpose. And so that, um, that is how we grow. We grew. It's by helping people to like heal and to recognize their life's purpose and then supporting them to achieve those goals. Um, and I benefited for that, from that tremendously, <laughs> uh, being able to kind of understand myself more and, and grow that way. Often we think of mass incarceration as primarily impacting men, especially men of color. But according to the sentencing project, between 1980 and 2019, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%. So how does the gender impact, uh, or how, you know, how does, how does gender impact the experience of incarceration and, and returning home after release from incarceration? Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, I mean, just like gender impacts almost every aspect of our lives, it it absolutely impacts women in prison and in a very gendered system um, that is completely segregated by into men and women. Um, and not everybody fits in those categories, which is a whole nother conversation. But I will say that... Um, women experience immense challenges before, during, and after incarceration. Um, already women are more likely, especially in New Orleans, to be single mothers. So there, we have a huge population of single mothers. So there's a lot of women who are taking care of children and really the breadwinner for their family that puts a lot of strain um, financially on families. And then women, when they don't have access to, to education or employment opportunities are frequently uh, given very few options. And I will say I am a mother. And as a mother, you'll do what pretty much what you have to do to take care of your children. And in some cases, that is not legal activity. One of our staff members at Operation Restoration, Dolphinette, talks about 
how she, I believe, had six children. I think six children, and she was shoplifting. So she had a ton of charges for shoplifting. And by the last charge she got from shoplifting, they said, you know, they, they sentenced her for, to seven years. And she said, you know, you can't send me to prison for seven years. What about my children? What's going to happen to them? And the judge said, you weren't thinking about your children when you were shoplifting. She was stealing kids' clothes. She was stealing things that her kids needed. And so there's very, there's not understanding at any level of the system for the enormous burden that many women face uh, that leads them into situations where they feel like they have to commit crimes. There's so many things I could talk about, domestic violence. There's, there's a lot of unique kind of issues that women face that lead them to be involved in the criminal legal system when they're in the criminal legal system, because they are a smaller percentage still overall of people in prison, they don't have access to as many resources. So in, you know, and, and several of the people we've worked with have said, you know, in, in halfway houses or even in reentry, people would come to do career counseling and they wouldn't even talk to the women because maybe there'd be 10 women in the house and there'd be 40 men. And so they would only talk to the men. So there's always often a lack of programming for women in prison. There's a lack of resources for women in prison and women are frequently dealing with the consequences of, of having to lose custody of their children before being incarcerated. And so there is an additional burden on the entire system. And also it really perpetuates these cycles of trauma in families um, to separate mothers from their children. So I'm sure that I could talk about probably a few other (laughs) ways in which gender is impacting incarceration, but um, it's vitally important and it's not something that has been talked about enough. Um, Although there are some wonderful formerly incarcerated women that are really leading this discussion and have been leading this discussion very publicly for the past 10, five to 10 years um, to make sure that we're focusing on women. I want to zero in on education for a minute, since that is your background. um, And Obviously, JSRI is is part of a higher education institution. So what role does education programming, particularly um, in incarceration settings, play in, you know, improving um, outcomes or experiences um, or just supporting um, particularly women who are incarcerated? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we know that education uh, in prisons in general for everybody has enormous positive impacts. So there's about a 48% reduction in recidivism. Um, I think the most recent numbers. So so you're about half as likely to go back to prison if you participate in educational programming. And that's not just getting a degree, that's like being in programming at all. Um, so that is an enormous benefit to society and to individuals and families. Um, there is also just a enormous benefit for the culture of an institution for everyone. So if you have educational programming, there are less violent incidences in prisons. There's, you know, it really, it, sh- it shifts the culture to be a positive and a hopeful place versus what can be 
and in un, and even under the best circumstances, prison is a traumatizing environment. I don't want to say that there are ever any good prisons. There, you know, good things can happen in prisons, um, and education is one of those things. But um, but I want to be really clear about that. And so, you know, we started the college program with Tulane for incarcerated women at LCIW. And uh, we, we started with women who had life sentences, actually. We decided to work with women with life sentences because I understand and, you know, my colleagues understood that women with life sentences are the leaders and the mentors in prisons. They really do so much to create the culture and to take care of people. And they have significantly less access to programming because a lot of programming is focused on reentry and people who are going to get out. And so we started with um, 20 women who had life sentences and then expanded to a second cohort. And they've really become like the leaders in that program. And when they graduate with their bachelor's degree, they'll be the tutors and the mentors and they'll support the program and really ensure its success. But there's an enormous benefits to have educational programming in prisons. And I'm excited that Loyola and also other Jesuit institutions are uh, seeking to expand education in prisons also because we just got the Pell Grant restored, um, which is an enormous win um, and will, I hope, lead to more educational opportunities. As Operation Restoration grew, you, as you, as you mentioned, spearheaded these advocacy efforts um, on Louisiana and, and other state legislations. Um, so why was it important for you to take on legislative advocacy and what have been some of the successes for Operation Restoration? Sure. Yeah. So it's, I mean, laws are how all of the systems are <laughs> kind of created and perpetuated. And so it's absolutely important that we're not just helping people who are impacted by the legal system, but also changing those laws so that we're having a positive impact on people who are not even yet involved in the legal system or stealing, still dealing with those consequences. Um, so the first piece of policy that we worked on was the ban the box in college applications legislation uh, which passed in 2017 in Louisiana, and Louisiana was the first state to pass that legislation. Um, New York, Illinois, other places had attempted, but we were the first to pass, um, which is really exciting because Louisiana is not usually the first in something so positive. <laughs> but um, but that was that really lit a fire underneath us. The experience because we we had no experience in legislative advocacy advocacy before that point. I'd never even been into a Capitol building. Like I missed that field trip, I think, in fourth grade. But um, it was wonderful to to kind of learn that process. And after that, we sat down and decided, kind of made a group of bills that we wanted to do. So there was the ban the box uh, in other states and then also a set of bills in Louisiana that we've worked on over several years. Um, and then I've also had the opportunity to do some federal legislative work um, specifically on the Pell Grant restoration uh, piece and to be able to be uh, in a lot of meetings to, to make that happen at the federal level. And, um, and I think that what's the most important and probably most exciting thing that's happened um, really, I think, in the past five years is that formerly incarcerated people are leading legislative change efforts 
in every state and also on the federal level. So it's, you know, in organizing, there's a saying, nothing about us without us. And I think that that is so true for criminal legal system reform. The only reason why we know what bills need to change or what laws need to change is because formerly incarcerated people and directly impacted people are telling people like, this is what, this is what happened in my life. And I don't want it to happen to somebody else. And so I think that that is such an important trend. And it's something that I absolutely want to continue um, to incorporate into JSRI's work as we're approaching advocacy um, and continuing to make uh, reform efforts in Louisiana and beyond. Have you seen any of these reform efforts, you know, and these policy successes impact directly some of the women that you're working with um, at Operation Restoration or or in the, the larger, you know, formerly incarcerated community? You know, how, how have you seen some of the kind of the direct benefits of these policy successes play out? Yeah, absolutely. So I can speak to the ban the box legislation because that's really what I focused on for my dissertation. Um, and it's, you know, so being able to remove questions from college applications that ask about whether or not you've been incarcerated or whether or not you have a criminal conviction um, has enormous impacts for the about one in three people nationally who's impacted by the criminal legal system because what we know from research is that people don't even apply to college who have a, a criminal conviction when they see the question. So really the issue is application attrition. People open the application, they're, they're trying to get back into school, they see a question about their criminal history, and they stop filling out the application. And because it's a barrier, it's, you know, it's like somebody looking at you and saying, what's the worst thing that's ever happened in your life? When you write about that in 50 characters, and it's just, it's inhumane. And so people don't fill out the applications. So in all the places we've been able to remove those questions, we have had enormous uh, kind of success and, and really and it's a diversity issue as well. So getting a different kind of type of diversity of experience into institutions. So, you know, people are able to access education more when they don't have this barrier. And then people can decide whether or not they want to disclose their conviction or, you know, or not. And so it gives a lot of people agency and it allows them to, um, to move forward with hope uh, in their lives and to access education to hopefully can, you know, continue to better their lives um, and not continue to pay the price over and over again for something that may have happened 20 years ago, or even if it happened two years ago, it's still not uh, anybody's business. And so I think we've seen a lot of positive impact from that ban the box legislation, um, not just in Louisiana, but nationally. So that brings us to now. You were recently announced as the new executive director of the Jesuit Social Research Institute at Loyola University, New Orleans. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier to me that this is kind of a, a dream job for you. Why is that? What, what drew you to the position? Yeah, I honestly, 
I saw the posting and I read it and the first, my first thought, and again, this goes back to like self-doubt. My first thought was like, that's too good, be, good to be true. They couldn't possibly, you want somebody like me, right? Which is funny because I had all the qualifications. It was literally exactly in line with everything I had done. Um, and it took, I would, I would say maybe five or six people sent me the job posting and were like, this, this sounds like you. This sounds like something that you've done. And then I had to sit with it and really use some discernment and use, you know, and talk to God and think about like, if this was the right step for me and, um, and kind of resound, like overwhelmingly, the answer was like, yes, do this, go for it. Um, and I, you know, every step of the process was just so excited to learn more and to, hear more about JSRI's work uh, and the way that they've contributed to New Orleans and to the Gulf South um, and for this like revisioning and possibility for the future of JSRI's work because um, Father Chris Kellerman here and Marcus Concord, who's a board chair and some, you know, Tanya Tetlow, the president of Loyola, really a lot of people have come together to like put together a vision for JSRI to like meet their mission through criminal legal system reform that is very exciting and uh, I think very timely and fits into exactly you know the political landscape of what needs to happen in Louisiana, what what the possibilities are for Jesuit institutions nationally now that the Pell Grant is back. And so I was very excited to be able to work um, on criminal legal system reform and to build a prison education program um, in this position. You mentioned, you know, criminal justice and this this education program with JSRI. Or what are some other areas of focus for you and your team as you're entering this position? Yes, thank you. Well, our mission, um, JSRI's mission, is to look at race, poverty, and immigration in the Gulf South. I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> but I think criminal legal system reform is the perfect way to really look at those issues and systems and how they work together. Um, so my priorities will be to start this prison education program for uh, men incarcerated in Louisiana and to build that program to really be a model program um, that, you know, I think I've been around a lot of prison education programs over the past five years. I've been really blessed to visit a lot of programs and um, to meet a lot of people that do this work. And frequently these programs feel outside of the university. They feel um, like, you know, students are just so, oh, so lucky to just have these classes. And that's not what we want to do here. We want to make it very clear that the students who are incarcerated in the prison, and we're actually going to also hopefully offer it to officers, are students at Loyola and have access to all the resources that Loyola students have access to. So we're, you know, working on making sure they have access to counseling and access to career services and access to the library. Um, so that's our, that's our goal with that program is to really integrate um, the students in the prison into the Loyola community. Um, and I think we have an opportunity to create a model to do that uh, nationally. 
And uh, my other really exciting priority is to create faculty working groups to support the faculty uh, to contribute to criminal legal system reform and advocacy through research. And uh, there are so many professors that are already doing criminal legal system reform advocacy work across our campus. And I have the privilege of being able to unite this group of people and to provide them resources to do even better work and to collaborate together um, to make change. And so I'm very excited uh, to be able to support the faculty to expand their work. Um, and and I'm sure that more, <laughs> more programs will come to the surface as we're building uh, through that process. Um, but right now, those are our two priorities, the prison education program and the faculty working groups. The one thing I would like to say is just a call to action or as like a next step is that, you know, I'm I am new to to this job. I'm new to the Jesuits and I'm every day learning things that I am so excited about. Um, but I am very excited to work with others and collaborate and to learn more about this amazing um, society and network. And so, um, you know, please, I would encourage you. And if anything I said today or, you know, in this podcast spoke to you, like, please reach out. Absolutely. And we'll put some resources in the show notes from JSRI, um, and maybe ways that they can get in touch as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. In the Catholic social justice tradition, um, we talk about this idea of prophetic witness, you know, choosing to see the world as it should be envisioning a future that is just and equitable for all people. Um, but I think that this can be challenging, you know, just speaking for myself. Um, I, I want to take the long view on things, um, but I also get frustrated by policies that I feel like aren't doing enough. Um, so how do you personally balance this idea of a, a prophetic vision um, with more pragmatic action, you know, toward concrete goals or, or policy objectives? Absolutely. Thank you for the question. I, so kind of going back to the story I told about the beginning of Operation Restoration, um, if you can't see it, if you can't imagine it, you can't build it, Right. And so I think that the, the way that I've learned to, to kind of balance these pieces is that like, we have to dream big, we have to be bold, and we have to um, really allow ourselves to remove those limitations first, to imagine what a world would look like without prisons, to imagine what is possible, uh, and then we can, once we see what that vision could be, once God grants us that vision, uh, then we can sit down together and work together to figure out what the first step is and the next step is <laughs> to move towards that goal. But you can't, you have to have a North Star. You have to have the vision and you have to build trust with the people that you're working with to know that you have that shared vision and that goal and that you can work together. Um, and that every step you're taking is towards that larger vision and goal. Um, so I'm, I'm very ambitious. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, I mean, I'm sure people have accused me of being unrealistic and I'm okay with it because I don't really want to just live in reality the way it is. I want to make a better world and I want to contribute to a faith that that does justice, right? Like there's some beautiful, beautiful, um, we have some beautiful kind of guidance from the values that the Jesuits hold from, from the Bible to really like be ambitious and be, uh, and to not just accept reality as it is, but to work every day to transform the world to, for the better. And so, um, so I, I, I am in the privilege of, uh, at this moment, sitting in the visioning seat where I get to sit here in the beginning of this job and think about what the biggest versions of our dreams and visions are with an amazing group of people. Um, and then pretty soon in the next month or so, we'll be sitting down and laying out what the actual steps are um, to the path. But I, yeah, you have to be able to see it before you can start moving forward. Looking beyond the scope of JSRI, you know, and, and maybe at the criminal justice system as a whole, what would a prophetic and re-envisioned criminal justice system look like to you? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, so I think we need to completely reimagine our prison system um, as, an, as a humane system of justice. Uh, and I don't unfortunately know of anywhere in the United States at least where that is the the leading goal is to create a humane, a human centered system of justice and accountability where we are helping people before we are hurting them more. Um, I this week attended the hearings in Baton Rouge to uh, repeal the death penalty. And unfortunately that legislation didn't pass and it's been attempted several years in a row. But um, one of the points that was brought up by several of the very moving testimonies um, was that, you know, Jesus Christ was convicted by a jury of his peers and sentenced to die. And we are still doing the same thing. And in Louisiana, we don't do a, a good job of even ensuring that people are not innocent before we sentence them to die and, and put them in very inhumane conditions. We are subjecting children in juvenile facilities here to horrific, horrific abuses. And those children become adults who then commit crimes that hurt our community. And I just don't, my hope is that we can recognize the insanity of what we are currently doing and the harm that we're perpetuating and do something that's new. And I, and I have a lot of hope that, that, that we can have a human-centered justice system um, where pe- the goal is to help people and not hurt people. Um, so that's, that's what we're working towards every day. You've mentioned a few times um, over the span of our conversation, you know, the way that God has influenced your discernment in this position and, and other parts of your life. So how does faith and, and your spirituality play a role in your work and, you know, in keeping you 
grounded, especially I think when some of these issues that we're talking about, you know, the injustices of incarceration are so intractable. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I came to faith in a really kind of interesting way in that like both of my parents were Catholic, but they did not baptize me. They didn't um, raise me in a, with a strong, I mean, I, I knew God and I, and my parents like really had made sure I had a relationship with God, but it wasn't a focus of our life. We didn't go to church. And um, when I started going into prisons, when I was 18 or 19, that's when I really first encountered people who are deeply spiritual, deeply religious and centered God in their lives. And the power, I was just overwhelmed by the peace and the kind of grace that people got from leaning on their higher power. And uh, it really moved me. And so when I moved to New Orleans, uh, I started going to church when I was teaching, primarily to like be able to kind of catch up with the parents of my students and like make sure, you know, be, to integrate into the community. But in going to church, I, um, I just was very moved and I ended up going through catechism and, and when I'm in my early 20s and being baptized and going through the sacraments. And God uh, has always been the, the center of my life. I just didn't know it until I was about 23, you know, I couldn't name it. Um, but he has really taken care of me in so many ways and so many op- moments uh, where I've received such grace. Um, and so I, I am very faithful. Um, this year, in the, the year between Operation Restoration and going to JSRI, I started reading the Bible um, from cover to cover because I'd never read it. And so I'm now on like day 280 of the Bible. And so I'm learning even more and more how this, you know, these lessons really fit into my life. And I find, I love doing that every day because I find that the lessons that I get each day are perfect for that day somehow, right? <laughs> it always works out. Um, and kind of that, there's so many ways in which being faithful has kept me grounded um, because there are lots of moments where I don't understand why something's happening or how something could happen to somebody or how a person could be put through so much pain and suffering. Um, but I do believe that it's not mine to know. And I believe that it's, that God has a plan for every single one of us and that we're all here serving our purpose. And, you know, that we are doing our best to be, God-like in that we are reducing the suffering of others, right? That we're like really working towards um, decrease that su- decreasing suffering in our world. And um, yeah, so it's, it's kept me very grounded in this work and very faithful. And I have found um, a lot of uh, fellowship in with deeply spiritual uh, and religious people who are incarcerated um, because in, the worst moments of our lives, um, God is there for us. And so I, I found that that's, that's true um, for not just me, but for, for many people that I've met through doing this work. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you. 
That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with Annie or learn more about JSRI, you can find that information in our show notes. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.